Do you understand that you are a member of a special church? We really don't think about that. We really don't. This is where we come every week. I've been coming here since 2005, and it's my church, and I don't think about it. I see the people that I see here. We have new people come and join. We do different things. We have the city lights and hallowed nights that we celebrate that every year because it's such a big deal. We have, and that's who we are, and we don't think about it. And we actually have an interesting, <clears throat> it's going to be that kind of day, Danny. We have an interesting view of the church because we sort of view ourselves as a small church. That's what's in our mind, really. This is just our group of people. It's who we are. But we are a church. We have averaged so far this year 388 people a week here. That puts us in the 400 category. Do you know that the majority of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention are 200 members or less? That makes us different. We are a larger church. We have a larger mission field. There's more of us out here. One of the things that this church did in 2016, and we didn't know about it, we didn't think about it, didn't cross our mind because we just do the business that we do, is we have landed on the Georgia Baptist Convention's list of the top 200 churches in the state of Georgia in baptisms. There are 3,422 churches in the state of Georgia, and the First Baptist Church of Gray is in, is in the top 200 of those churches. Guys, that's a big deal. That's a big old stinking deal. Now, we had 23 baptisms last year. That means 23 people whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. 23 people whose lives have been changed as a result of the ministry of this church, of your ministry of the work that you do, maybe just by coming here and singing on Sunday mornings, their lives have been changed. Jesus has worked in their lives. Guys, this is a big deal. Now, you can lean back and say, well, you know, that's numbers, and pastors are all about numbers. Pastors are all about souls. And we landed on a list that said that we have a focus in this church of reaching souls for Jesus Christ. That's important to change the world, to change Jones County, to change our little area requires us to have that vision. And we are on track with that vision. So congratulations, First Baptist Church. Congratulations to everybody that had a part in reaching these children, reaching these adults for Jesus. For those of you that, that witnessed on boat docks, I heard that story for those of you that have witnessed in church, for those of you that have witnessed everywhere you've gone and touched somebody and just sat down and talked about Jesus. Thank you for being obedient to the call of Jesus because that's what we do. That's what we're here for, and it's a good thing. Y'all need to be excited. Somebody ought to clap or at least ought to get some kind of amen or something. There you go. Let's pray together. Father, I've watched human nature over the years. I've had a number of years to do that. 
And I've watched human nature, and I've noticed, Lord, that any time we get a little taste of success, we want more. And I pray that's what you're doing here. Lord, that we have been recognized as being a church with uh, the top 200 churches in the state of Georgia in baptisms. And Lord, I know we could look at that as a number and, and do our little number dance. But Lord, we can look at that and see people's lives being changed by the power of God that he's working in this church. Help us to see that and help us to taste it and help us to want more. Lord, don't ever let us let up. Lord, don't let circumstances or our attitudes or our thoughts get in the way. Let the primary thought of First Baptist Church of Gray be, let's show people Jesus. And then watch you do your thing. And thrill us with the power of your spirit working in this place, touching lives all around us. Lord, I pray that you shut our mouths sometimes by the power that you display in our vision. That we see you work and do things and we lean back and can't say a word because of the magnificence of what you've done. That we knew we couldn't do it and yet look what you did through us. Help us to see through eyes that, that understands eternity, infinity, the power of an, an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God who knows no bounds, who delivers more than we can ask, immeasurably more than we can imagine. Oh, Father, in this hour when we worship you, let us be worshiping you in spirit and in truth, honestly, soul naked before you, standing before a God that loves us and isn't angry at us and instead wants to give us life. Invigorate us. Move us. Please, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all got to catch up with me this morning. I don't know if it's two cups of coffee or the fact that I understand that God's chosen us to do something special. I think it's the latter rather than the former, but I'm a little bit excited. And it's strange because I have struggled with this sermon that I've written for this morning. Uh, it's one of those that I wrote one sentence at a time. I hate those. And you may hate it when I'm over with, but that's okay. You can check it off, and I did my sermon. But we need to understand what God's done and the job that he's given to us. And it's pretty cool. And he is an unconventional God. He does unconventional things. And we know that because of what Jesus did with the woman at the well. He broke all the rules. He did what he had to do. He didn't care what anybody said. He picked this woman. He picked this woman out just like he picked you out. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. Listen to the story. I'm reading it from the message this morning. It's pretty long. It's John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Make sure I got it all here. Good for me. There we go. It's from the message. I wanted you to hear it through different ears. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed, although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass 
through Samaria. Had to. Had to pass through Samaria. He came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. And Jesus answered, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, You'd be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh, living water. And the woman said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well's deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it, he and his sons and livestock, and passed it down to us? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I will give, that I give, will never thirst Not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she said. Well, that's nicely put. I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, but the time is coming. In fact, it has come. When what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are, the way you live your life that counts before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true self in adoration. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to look any further. Thank you, God, for blessing us with your word. All right, every week when I finish getting ready for one message, I start on the next one and always read ahead. And I've told you before, I just read the scripture uh, for the, you know, four or five days and, and see what it says to me and where God leads me. And he took me to a strange place on this one. It was odd, and that's why I had to wrestle with it so much. The scripture we read was John 4, 1, 2 through 23. It's the woman at the well it's been called that for hundreds of years. I've preached it several times in different places. There's always things that you say and you hear the same and this is, this is what it means and all this. And I read it this week 
and all I could think of was Friday night football. I'm, yeah, that was me. You know, what, Lord, why are we at Friday night football talking about the woman at the well? And see, y'all got to listen because you're going to think I'm going one place and I'm not, and I'm not going there. I'll, I'll take you somewhere else and you'll see it in just a second. But see, I can tell when ball practice starts by our Wednesday nights. I don't have to have a calendar. I don't have to have anybody tell me. I don't need uh, nothing. I just know on Wednesday night I can tell when ball practice starts because our attendance goes down on Wednesday nights. Have lots of kids and all of a sudden we don't have as many kids. Ball practice started. Maybe it's football. Maybe it's softball. Maybe it's something else. But something's going on, kids are gone, and it's only physics. You can't be in two places at one time. It's just not a possibility. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, it's aggravated me. You know? I mean, you work and you study and you do, and everybody says, we want our kids to do And then you're off at a ball field somewhere, and we've done our part, and I'm just sitting there going, what's your problem, people, and all this kind of stuff, Right? Have y'all ever heard of something called JanFest? Y'all ever hear that? University of Georgia has JanFest every year in January. It's a, a big stinking deal in the music community. It's a by invitation only event. Your director, your band director has to recommend you to JanFest, and then those folks have to look over your resume or whatever it is that they send to your application, and they have to decide if they want you or not, and then they have to decide which band and all that kind of stuff they're going to put you in. Well, one of my kids got to go to JanFest, and it was a big, stinking, hairy deal. You know, my baby got invited to go to JanFest. We didn't do sports at my house. Y'all know that. We did music. We did lots and lots of music at my house. JanFest was an honor. It was a four-day clinic, and it had some of the best clinicians in the United States comes to JanFest every year. In fact, Anna works with one of the direct, one of the uh, professors at the University of Michigan was her clinician the year we went to JanFest. And he is one of the top names in the country in band. It's a big stinking deal. It's a four-day thing. It goes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yeah, and Sunday. <laughs> yeah, and see... Y'all know, because we've been here a long time, that we sat on that row right back yonder where my beloved wife is sitting right now. That's where we sat. And on Jed and Fest Sunday, those seats were empty. Steve Albanese preached to an empty back row that day or whoever sat in our place. First Baptist Church didn't get our tithe until the next week because I was at the Hugh Hodgson School of Music on the campus of the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, watching my baby play under the direction of what's his name? <laughs> Michael Haithcock. Dad gummit, I thought I'd never forget that. So what I wanted to say to you about your Wednesday nights and me going to that was, hello pot, meet the kettle. I understand. I understand. And I look at this scripture and all of this sort of kind of falls into place. 
he had to travel through Samaria. Had to. So he came to a town of Samaria. This is John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. It was about noon. Y'all remember the names? Some of you remember probably the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's sort of where the faith started. Jesus, uh, God spoke to Abraham first. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. They had several other kids. But those are the three patriarchs. And, and God spoke to them. The Bible got off the ground. Jacob's son, Joseph, settled around this area of Samaria, settled around this Sychar area. And his daddy, Jacob, dug a well. Now, you don't need to know this, okay? This is for your Bible trivia night when y'all are sitting around playing Bible trivia somewhere. But I want you to understand, because I just thought this was cool. Jacob's well is a literal place you can go there today. It's got a church built around it. It is seven feet wide. Now, to get into it, they carved out a little hole, and a skinny guy, they say, has to hold his hands up above his head and goes down inside there, and it's seven feet wide, and it's carved through solid rock. They didn't dig, just dig. They had to chisel their way solid rock. In 1935, it was 131 feet deep. That was, I don't know, that's the first time they actually measured it. That was in 1935. When they measured it again in the 60s, it was only 60 feet deep. Oh, did it carve off? No, did the walls fall in or something? No, 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 no. You know what happened to it? Little boys. Little boys. Because y'all know this. If you've ever been near a well, a little boy, he may be 85 years old. But a little boy can't stand himself. He has to pick up a rock and he has to drop it in the well. Has to. Has to. Wow, that's deep. We had to. They've been dropping rocks in that well for 2,000 years. Can you imagine how many little bitty rocks? So that's the reason the depth changed from 1935 until you get to, to 1960. It went 131 feet deep originally. Now it gets dry sometimes because they filled it in with rocks. But now here's the deal about this. I, that's trivia. Y'all just take that home with you and, and, and say, yeah, we didn't need to know that. But this was, this was Jacob's well. If you wanted to live, you had to have water. And this is the primary water source of that area. This was the one place in Sychar where everybody had to come to get their water. Everybody had to come here. Rich, poor, men, women, educated, ignorant. Everybody came to the well. Now, the well had a hole in it about the size of a skinny man. That means only one, maybe two buckets could go down in that at a time. So if everybody shows up to get water, you've got to wait in line, right? And what do people do when they wait in line? You do it at the grocery store now. You'll talk to a complete stranger. I've done it. In line at a grocery store, they have a little cute kid in front of you. The kids go, yap, 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 and you look at them and say, oh, they're so cute. Oh, you should be with them at night. I'm telling you, they're a terror at night. Really, they just look. And you have a conversation, and it just happens. That's what you do. So they'd go here every day and they'd meet the same people every day. And they would talk about what's going on in their lives and about their kids and the business and their life and their aches and the pains. 
The well was the center of their community. It's where they came to gather. It's where they talked. Y'all follow me? Then we learned how to put water through pipes. You didn't need to go to the well anymore. So what became the community then? Where did you go to? Well, you sociologists are going to say that I've deleted a lot of history, and I have. But we moved from there, and eventually we got to the church. And the church is the center of the community, was the center of the community. In the 1700s, this is your history lesson, there'll be a test later. In the 1700s, listen, listen, I want you to understand this, y'all just let it sink in. We didn't have Sunday school until the 1700s. Before the 1700s, there ain't no such thing as Sunday school. So if you can say, well, we always have Jesus had Sunday school. No, Jesus didn't have Sunday school. Jesus went to school at the church and learned. We didn't have Sunday school until the 1700s because, see, what happened in the 1700s, and this is just another little trivial thing I want you to know right quick. In the 1700s, the kids, these little guys, these young folks, had to work 16 and 18 hour a day in the factories every day. And they finally passed a law that said that your little precious angels couldn't work but 12 hours a day, six days a week. That was an improvement. But that meant that one day a week they were out and that's the only day they could get education and the church stepped up and said, we need to teach them how to read and write. And so the church brought them in to teach them to read and write and and they used the Bible to do it and that's how the church became the center of the community. And you can know this, drive up through New England, go through every town, every town in New England has a beautiful church building that's built up. They're not churches anymore. The church is not the center of the community anymore. It's not. Because, see, time changed again. And that's what hurts some of us older folks. Is we remember when the church was the center of the community. And it's not anymore. Something else has become the center of community. It's the schoolhouse. Everybody goes to school. Now, y'all remember back... Y'all can't remember back. Some of you aren't that old. My granddaddy quit work, quit school in the third grade to work on the farm with his daddy so the family would have enough food and money to live. Third grade. My granddaddy quit school when he was nine years old. So we could plow the field. So we have any nine-year-olds in here? Anybody nine-year-old, nine years old? Anybody close nine years old? Raise your hand. Just sort of wave it. There's, there's one nine-year-old. Anybody else nine years old? My granddaddy was her size when he quit school to go plow behind a mule. If you did that today, you'd get arrested for child abuse. Because we all go to school. And if your kids go to a school, I'm making an argument, y'all stay with me. If your kids go to school, they're going to meet kids that they want to play with. And where are they going to play? On the football field. And on the baseball field. And on the track team. That's where our community is now. The ball field is where the community meets. That's where it meets now. It used to be the well, it used to be the church, and now it's Death Valley. Now it's between the hedges. Now it's 
Greyhound Field. That's where our children gather to play. That's the new place. If Jesus came today as he did then to this woman in the well, I honestly believe that what Jesus would do is show up to the, remote, the most remote concession stand during some of the biggest plays of the game where nobody's at the concession stand except this woman who was trying to sneak around and get something so nobody would see her, and that's where Jesus would meet her. I don't think I'm off base. You can argue with me about it. Sociologists, y'all jump in there and help me out. It makes sense. Now, here's where we got to get a grip. And I say this to the white-haired folks. Not you younger guys, but to the white-haired folks. I want you to get a grip. We can rail against schools having sporting events and counties having rec leagues on Wednesday nights and Sundays until we die. It will not change. Stop it. Let's just all stop it. There's no reason to fuss about it. We'll be mad. We'll be aggravated. We will not draw a single person to Christ by doing it. We'll be angry old coots who will sit around and relive our glory days about when the church was this and the church was that and everybody came to church and we'll be self-righteous and we will die and everybody will sort of be happy that we're gone because now they can be happy. Y'all know that. Some people light up the room when they come in and some people light up the room when they leave. Well, pastor, it's just not right. Yeah? Well, you know what? When Jesus went to meet this woman at the well, the people around him said, that's not right. That's not right. He's not supposed to do this. Verse 4 said, he had to travel through Samaria. He had to travel. The scripture says he had to. No, he didn't. Geographically, he did not have to travel through Samaria. And if he was a good person, if he was a good Jew who followed the rules, he would not have gone through Samaria. He would have gone east and picked up the king's highway on the other side of the Jordan, he would have went north until he got to right beside where he wanted to go and hung a left and he would have gotten there. Or he would have done what other good Jews did and turned left and gone out to the coast, picked up the Via Maris. Those of you who are in that the world may know, know about that trade route, the Via Maris. Went north on the Via Maris until he got near where he wanted to go, turned right and he would get there. That's what he would have done. But he deliberately decided to go through the ghetto. That's the equivalent. When I was a kid, I went to Dr. Bregman in downtown Atlanta. And we drove from Austell, and it was 20 miles, and my mama would not drive on the interstate. She hated the interstates. She was scared that we would end up in Timbuktu. She'd miss her sign. And so we had to go, and we always drove through Cabbage Town. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Cabbage Town or not, but it was black as black could be, and, and, and white people didn't go through there. And people would say, you're going, to, you're going through Cabbage Town? And mom would say, well, yeah. Why are you doing that? Because I'm afraid to drive on the interstate. They said, you're crazy for doing that. They looked at Jesus and they said, you don't have to go that way. You're crazy. Those people are Samaritans. Those people aren't like us. Those people are trash. You don't need to associate or even be near them. 
And what the Samaritans did wrong, just so you know why they were trashy people, is, is the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And these people had decided that they were just going to be a part of that Assyrian culture. And they let their kids marry the Assyrians and they were half-breeds. Ooh, that's what the problem was. And they didn't really look like us and they didn't really act like us and they wanted to have their own rules and, and, and we can't hang out with each other. The Samaritans hated the Jews, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Bible says that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. This is where the, a little bit of word study helps you. The word had to, if you look, up, look it up in the, in, in the uh, Bible dictionaries, you'll find out in the lexicon, you'll find out that the word had actually means necessary. And that makes a difference. It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Why was it necessary? Listen to this, because this is what happened to you. Jesus knew that there was a woman there who was failing at life, and she didn't really want to. We know that she didn't want to. How do we know? The scripture doesn't say. How many times did she get married? Somebody say the number out loud. Five times she got married. She wanted to do it right. She wanted to do it right, but she didn't seem to be able to. She just kept on failing. Her life was not, when she was a little girl and she dreamed of what her life was going to be like, she never dreamed, well, I'm going to live, I'm going to marry five men, and then when I divorce my fifth man, I'm going to live with a guy from then on until I get tired of living with him and I'll give me another. She did, no little girl I've ever met dreams that dream. And you know this woman didn't dream that dream either. And Jesus knew it. And see, you know where she lived? She lived in gray. She lived in this little bitty small town. Because we all know, if you live in gray, everybody knows your business. You get in trouble and you're on the front page of the, of the Jones County News. I know when you sell your house, they list that in the Jones County News. I know when you buy new property, they list that in the Jones County News. If your child gets picked up, that's listed in the Jones County News. I know your business. And you know mine. And you can do so. Listen, I have had things happen at the church and have people call me before I've had time to lean back in my chair. And I go, how'd that happen? Because our network is like, it's, it runs like a hundred gig. It's like this. Poof. We know each other's business. This lady lived in. This lady lived in Sukkar. Everybody knew her business. You're not supposed to get married five times. You're not supposed to to live with somebody. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. She's trash. Everybody stay away from her. That's probably why she was at the well at noontime. When she showed up at the well, Jesus asked her for a drink of water, and she was one rude lady. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman? She didn't know him from Adam. You know what that's called? Prejudice. And we all have them, 
And we can walk around and pretend that we don't, but we do, and we have to fight these things back all the time. This woman shows her prejudice. Jesus responds to her prejudice very calmly and says, if you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And you can almost hear this woman sneer. She says, you don't even have a bucket, dude. <laughs> you, you, you're going to work some magic? You really think you're something, don't you? You think you're better than Jacob was that made this well in the first place? Jesus, again, doesn't respond by combative or anger or any of those things. He turns and he says, listen, everybody drinks from this water is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And she leans back a little bit and she's intrigued and she says, I'd like to have some of that water. Y'all, let me tell you something about Jesus. He has horrible social skills. <gasps> he does. He has rotten social skills. Because, see, if you knew a woman that had been married five times and, and was living with somebody else, you wouldn't mention it. You would talk to her. You wouldn't say a word. You might say, how's the family? Jesus goes and says, get your husband. He just darts right into this thing. And, of course, she's sort of embarrassed by her life, and she says, well, I don't have a husband right now. And he says, well, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, plus you're living with somebody right now. Think about what that means, folks. Think about that. She had five husbands. Five times she had suffered through one of the most serious rejections that she's ever going to have. Five times she had to pack up her house and move on somewhere else. Five times her heart was broken. And even if she was the one that was doing the leaving, that she said she didn't want to live there anymore, she still knew that this wasn't the way I wanted this thing to end. There was pain in that relationship. And I think that there was so much pain, and I can't prove this as Randy's speculating, but I think there was so much pain in the relationship, she said, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'll just live with a guy. Let's just make it easier. I'll live with him. We get tired of each other and go away. I, I, I ain't got to do this. This is a pain. I'm not worried about this. I'm just going to stop. But she didn't want to talk about that with Jesus. So she says, I'll tell you what, let's talk about church. And Jesus says, let's not. Let's not talk about church. Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And somehow this starts to resonate with this lady and she's done. She knows there's something different and she responds, I think, in a very strange way by saying, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. And then the most cool statement in the Bible, I just, I just think this, I would have loved to have been there to see this, when Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I just, y'all don't, I get goosebumps when I say it. Y'all get goosebumps, I mean, all that kind of, man, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I'm here. I am here. I am here. Now that gives us a lot to think about. 
Because, see, we gather at the stadium every week. And some of you folks talk to me about your grandkids and, and where your grandkids live. And you drive for hours and hours and hours to watch your grandkids play ball. And we love doing it. And it's fun for two reasons. Number it's fun because we get to go see our kids do these things and our grandkids do these things. And it's fun to gripe about it. You know, tell me it's not. We all get together. I listen to you. I've said the same thing. I had to drive for two hours to get up there and see those little brats play peewee football. Cost us $100 going up there and back. Had a flat tire. Had to eat at three different restaurants. The food was cold when we got it. But you should have seen him on the field. Yeah, that's what we do. There is nothing wrong with that. It is not immoral, it's not a sin, it is where our community celebrates itself, and this is where Jesus goes. You see, he walks in every week, and he looks just like us, because he is us. Do you understand? That when we, we go to these things, that we're Jesus walking in. It's a necessity that we go there. It's, it's, there are a number of other places that we could go, and there are lots of people that will tell us that there are better things that we could be doing. But Jesus is here. The people are here. He lives in us. When we go to those games, Jesus goes to the game. He goes to the game when we're at the game. And what are we looking for when we go there? We're looking for our family. We're looking for our friends. I was a band widower. Renee volunteered with the band. All of my kids were in the band. And when I'd show up for a football game, I couldn't sit with my wife. I couldn't sit with my children. There was nobody there that I was related to that I could sit with. So when I came to the game, I'm scouring the stands looking for a friendly face. Who am I going to sit down beside? Who is I? Oh, there's my church people. I'll go sit up by them. That's what, that's what we do. We are looking for our community. We want to see our children and our grandchildren play. We want them to see, see them do something special. We want to be able to say, that's my boy or that's my girl. We want to be proud. There is nothing wrong with that. Don't feel guilty for it or let people make you guilty that you should be. No, do that. But understand, not every play is a great play. Not, there's time in between plays, there are quarter breaks, halftime, pregame, postgame, and we talk. And you know what I'm talking about. We talk and we hear stories and we share our joys and we share our hurts and we share our lives as we're sitting there in community. That's what we do. I have counseled people sitting on those aluminum bleachers in Greyhound Stadium because we just happened to sit beside each other and it happened to be the day that their world was falling apart. Jesus showed up and so did they. The woman saw Jesus and if I'm right, and I am, when the people see us, they will see Jesus. Not because we're pretentious or studied or obligated or religious snobs or we're wearing First Baptist Church t-shirts, 
but because we have Jesus in us. We smell like Jesus. I got scripture to support that. When we walk into the room, we hear people's stories. The Spirit nudges us, and we surprise ourselves by saying and doing Jesus' things. And we tell these people, sometimes strangers, that we will pray for them. And we'll tell some people what Jesus did for us. And we'll invite people to come to church with us because we are Jesus. I am crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. Now I want to be very careful here because it would be very easy for you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. I've read the Bible a number of times. I'm working on our thinking, y'all. I've read the Bible a number of times and I have yet to find a place that tells me that I've got to attend church at these times on these days in order to go to heaven. Now, if you have found that in the scripture, you need to correct me. But I've read the Bible several times through in several different translations and I haven't found it yet. They didn't have Sunday school until the 1700s. That doesn't mean that everybody before 1700 went to hell because they didn't go to Sunday school. Don't come up to me after the service and tell me that the church in Acts met daily. I know that. I've studied it. Don't come and remind me after the service this morning that your mama and your daddy taught you that you got to come to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening. If you do that, you're all good Christians. I don't need to be reminded. I don't need to hear it. But Jesus says something here that has to be the driver for us. He says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. All the good people of every age that's ever been had their church rules. And in Jesus' day, they had their church rules. Jews had to worship in in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had to worship on Mount Gerizim. And anyone who was a good person did what they were supposed to do. But Jesus said, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And in simple language, what that means is that we are supposed to go to God honestly, openly, recognizing who we are, that we stand before Jesus with our eyes wide open, seeing who he is and knowing who we are, and that drives us to worship him when we understand who we are in front of him and the fact that he had to come find us. It was necessary. We were just like that woman. Our lives, we wanted, you know, I don't believe a single person in this room, no matter how bad you've had in your life or how good you've had, I don't believe a single person in this room ever made their mind up to live their life hard. We all want to do the right thing, but we don't know how. And without Jesus coming to us, we can't know. And when we realize that he made that decision to come to me, it drives me to worship. Now let me clear something up for you. We're almost done. Hang in just another minute. 
Pastor, are you saying that we don't need to come to church to be good Christians? I'm not saying that. I'm saying to be good Christians, we've got to be the church. There's a little difference. It is essential. Listen to me. It is essential that we meet together on a regular basis for praise and worship. If you can come to church once a quarter and you're good, you need to look at yourself real hard. Because we want to get together in community. And we want to be a part of the body. And we want to worship together. It is essential that we meet together in, a com in community groups, be it a Sunday school class, small group meetings. It's essential that we do this to study and pray and be friends with other Christians who can help walk us through life. Because I can't do it. There's a thousand and fifty of y'all. If, if ten of you have a crisis at the same time, nine of you got to miss me. But if ten of you have ten friends, they'll walk you through. I saw a Facebook post last night or this morning, I forget when, that's a perfect illustration of this, of someone in our church who's, who's recently lost a loved one and three of them went and worked together at that house. And they had tears and they walked together. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. We got to belong. We need to get together. It's necessary for us to gather as often as we can. But guys, it's necessary for us to go to the well too. It's necessary for us. There are people at the well who want to have a life that they know exists. There are people at the football games, at the fields that you go to, even at those peewee league where the football is bigger than the kid that's trying to carry it. There are people there who want to have a life. They know that life exists. They don't know how to get it. If you have it, you're their tour guide. You're the one that points it out. The next time you're at the field and somebody point, pours their heart out to you and you weren't expecting it, remember that you're Jesus and it was necessary for him to show up that day in you for them. Show them the way to Jesus. It's who you are. It's what we do. It's necessary. Let's pray. Father, after a, a message that you give me like that when I feel so weak and inadequate. But Lord, I know your Holy Spirit's the teacher, not me. And you call me just to say the words so the Holy Spirit can do the teaching. And Lord, we always teach the woman at the well story from the point of view that we're the woman and Jesus comes to us and and that's, that's pretty much true. But Lord, once you've come to us, then you tell us to go. We can't hoard you like your gold to put in a, in a safe and save for a rainy day. The interest we gain in you is, is brought by spending you, by taking you to people. And letting them know what you did for us. And Lord, if you haven't done anything for us, you need to help us see that we need a change of heart and a change of mind. Lord, I see what you did for this woman. And I see that you've told us to go. 
And like you went, you want us to go too. Lord, there's no telling how many people at the Jones County High School football game and, and all the private schools that we have children in, there's no telling how many people that are there that come to the game in the back of their mind, they're thinking, I wish my life were better. I wish I knew what to do. Start by breaking our hearts with that, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you came to church this morning with that thought in your mind, I, I need an answer. I don't know what to do. If you've never turned to Jesus, I ask you this morning to do that. He is the answer. It's a relationship with him he'll guide you through. He asks you to turn away from what you're doing now and turn toward him, and that's all he asks. And I'd invite you to do that and come to the altar and tell me about it. For the rest of you, folks, you're Jesus. When you look in the mirror, I hope you see that. We are Jesus, and we live our lives. And take a few minutes and pray for all of those people that you know that need him too. You can do that. It only takes a minute. Won't you stand?